0: I'm Sarah Becker, Uh, my husband Dean and I, we serve here at Anthem with uh, the youth, specifically our middle schoolers, so hello everyone who's middle school. Um, Today I'll be reading our passage today, so if you guys don't mind standing up with me as we read God's word. Today we're reading out of Matthew 19, verse 13 to 26. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray, The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to them, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to them, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions
1: Thank you, Sarahs. Good morning, everybody. Sarah Thurman, I'm gonna take her joke from her. She said after first service, she wanted to come up here and do announcements and then tell everybody that her job as an administrative assistant is getting me coffee when I need it. I was like, thanks for not sharing that. Even though that is why we hired you. This morning, I wanted to briefly take some time to give you guys uh, something to look forward to, a brief announcement. Um, You know, several months ago, we we split the service into two services, and uh, some of that was a result of how packed the kids' ministry has been, and so we wanted to try to lessen the blow for all the teachers and give the kids, like, an actual environment that um, was fruitful. And... So we did that, and when we divided up the services, like, actually both these services ended up kind of filling up. But what we noticed was for a church that talks a lot about community and a lot about relationship, it's really difficult when you split people up between two services, and then the questions become like, do they go to our church anymore? Like, I never see them anymore, and I miss seeing so-and-so, and And there's all these questions. And so it's been really hard for us to divide—have the services divided up into two— and so, we've been chatting for a while about trying to get back to one service, knowing that it would mean kind of packing this room in, but we've figured out a plan to do so. And so, starting the first Sunday in December, we'll just be at one 10 a.m. service, um, and we'll be kind of piling everybody in here. And they've done a really good job of reconfiguring the kids' ministry um, so that there's more classes and smaller classes that can sustain more kids, and so we're looking forward to kind of getting back to one and seeing everybody again, and we'll see how long we can do that for, but if you've been around here any time length at all, uh, you know that we make changes all the time, so we just roll with this, right? We're gonna try it and see how it works. So uh, let's pray, and then let's get into Matthew chapter 19. Jesus, I thank you uh, for the awesome, awesome privilege of gathering as your church. Thank you for each individual in this room. Uh, God, we just give you this time today. We ask God that your word would do the work that you intend for it to do. God, I thank you for each individual. I know that it's really by your power and your might that they're even here this morning. It's a gift, God, and you've put air in our lungs and you've given us these eyes to see and these ears to hear and these hands and these feet. And Jesus, for some reason, you ordained today for us to be alive. And so I just don't take that for granted and know that there's a deeper work that you're doing within all of us. And so I pray in this moment this morning that you'd meet us in this place and that your spirit Would pierce our hearts with your word. Jesus, we give you this time in your name. Amen. Awesome. So, the last few weeks, we've been on a series of hard topics, right? And every week I've come up here and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, we gotta talk about this. Uh, But one of the things we say all the time is teaching verse by verse through the word, it doesn't give us the freedom to sort of skirt the hard topics. And so, we talk through divorce, we talk through marriage and remarriage, we talk through church discipline, forgiveness, the lack of forgiveness. And today is gonna kinda follow suit in this same stream of difficult things that that Jesus teaches on. However, though this is a difficult topic today, I actually think there's a huge word of encouragement for us as a church that kind of awaits in this text. And so we'll get to that towards the end. But I think it's a topic that's super relevant to where we're at today. Um, As you just heard Sarah read this passage, you know this passage about the rich young ruler, and one of the things I was thinking about this week is the fact that um, it sounds pretty good to be rich and young, doesn't it? Like, there's something about being rich and young that sounds so amazing, because it's an amazing combo. Like, to have all the cash in the world and to be able to have the energy and the time to do whatever you want with all the money you have, it seems like that's the perfect setup. Um, What I'm noticing the older I get is that my feet hurt and my back hurts and that my future existence will probably be spending more money on more comfortable shoes that don't look as cool and maybe on like chairs that actually lift me up so I don't have to get up myself and beds that are comfortable and you, you realize that most of your money is probably being spent on things that aren't fun or like a roof on your house, you know? But when you're young and you have loads of cash, And all the energy in the world, it seems like the perfect combo to do what you want, when you want, how you want it. And so as we approach this man this morning, this rich, young man, um, realize that this is a man that, again, he's youthful. He has everything in the world. um, And this is the guy that Jesus is introducing us to but rich and young is not are not the only things that this guy has or who he is. Um, the way that this interaction is actually recorded in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke is that they tell us that he was also a ruler. He was rich, he was young, and he was also a ruler. And so we're not told what he ruled over, but we know that he had power. So he's rich, he's young, he has power and authority. And so again, it's like the perfect trifecta. It's the best that this world has to offer us is power and wealth and our youth. Pretty amazing. But then again, even that's not it for this man because we're also told that he's a very moral man, that he's a good guy. He's not some Neanderthal. We're told that he honors his parents, that the guy doesn't sleep around. He didn't steal. He didn't get ahead. He, he, he didn't steal to get ahead. He, wasn't, uh, he was good to his neighbors. He was an honest person. Like, this guy seems like the perfect combo to us, this picture that has been painted for us with this man. Mark tells us that this man um, had been this way since he was a youth. So this man has always been like this, continued to you know, make good moral decisions, had lots of money, had power, had everything that, that, that people want today. Um, and so who is this guy? Like he seems too good to be true. Like he's the perfect man, and that's who he is. But he again, he represents the best that the world has to offer for us. And so what more can the world offer us than cash, lots of years, power, integrity, and morality? Uh, people like him people spoke well of this man and it doesn't get any better than this and yet as we drop in on this guy in the story we discover that not all is good in this guy's world like it seems like he's got the combination of everything that everybody would want but yet not everything is good there's still something that's off there's still this sort of hole to be filled in this guy's life which is kind of shocking but if you look at this passage Uh, what the passage says, you see just how kind of unsettled this young man is, like unsettled he is with life. In verse 16, he asked Jesus, Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do, Jesus? Meaning salvation. And so what good deed do I have to do to merit or to earn my salvation, Jesus? And so in our text, uh, again, the, this whole idea of what good deed do I have to do to, etern- to, to, gain, or to have eternal life, um, you also see this interchange with heaven, with the kingdom of heaven, with the kingdom of God. He's simply saying, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus, I want to go to heaven when I die, but what do I need to ensure that I'm actually going to have a place? And so he asks an amazing question because most people don't consider their eternality very Seriously, They don't take it serious enough. Certainly not people who are rich and young and powerful because they're too busy living their lives to actually think about the eternal consequences, the things that are to come. But this guy shows like some sense of wisdom for us. Like who knows what tomorrow will bring, but regardless of how young you are, how much money you have, or how much power you have, and so he's asking this really good question, but it's also a question I think that can be asked for you and I today. It sort of characterizes how many, how, how many people today assume salvation is, assumed, is, is obtained by what? Their good deeds. If I do enough good things, then I can attain salvation. And statistics today actually show that most people today believe in heaven, and they believe that their assurance in heaven to enter into heaven actually rests upon their good deeds and their moral behavior. Because in the majority of people's minds, good people go to heaven. That's just the way we think. Bad people don't, good people do. But the question is, like, at what point does the scale tip from bad to good? Is it 51%? Is it 60%? Is it 75%? Like, How do you figure out at what point the scale tips? And I was thinking about this this week, that what if heaven is a little bit more like Harvard and a little less like NIC, right? Um, how many of you graduated from NIC or at least spent some time there? It's high school 2.0. It's amazing, you know? And I I went there, did, did that. But maybe heaven is a little bit more like Harvard than it is NIC. And the reality is that the requirements are different to get into NIC than your requirements to get into Harvard, right? But what if heaven is like Harvard? What if it's not reserved for good people? What if you actually have to be great? Like, it's heaven after all. Like, good doesn't seem good enough. What if you have to be great? Like, are you going to let in the 51 percenter? But what if great in and of itself isn't even good enough? Like, what if you actually have to be perfect? That would make us all cringe. What if you have to be perfect to enter into heaven? And so go back to the question in verse 16. How would you answer this question? If you were sitting with your buddy, you're sitting at coffee, your buddy leans across the table and asks you the same question— How do I get into heaven? How do you answer that question? How do you answer it? Because most people in churches like ours would answer this question like this. You don't have to do any good deeds to get into heaven because you're saved by grace. It's all grace. You're saved when you respond in faith to the gracious gift of God through his son Jesus. And that's how most Bible-believing Christians would answer this question. And it's actually a fairly solid answer. But that's what makes Jesus' answer to his question so amazing. Because if you take a look at it one more time, this is how Jesus responds to the guy in verse 17. And he says to them, to him, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. That's God, the Father. If you would enter into life, meaning salvation and eternal life, keep the commandments is what Jesus says. What an interesting phrase. And so now this guy's probably like, huh? Like, keep the commandments. Like I've done that, right? Like he goes on to say in verse 18, like which ones? Which commandments do you want me to keep? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so there they are. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. My question is, did Jesus mean that? Did Jesus mean it when he said that? I mean, it seems inconsistent with so many of the other teachings of Jesus, and even the teachings in the New Testament, it seems a little inconsistent. So what did Jesus mean? I mean, look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus answers Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's no mention of deeds in that passage. And then you you look at this list of commandments that Jesus gives this rich young ruler and he throws out six of them specifically. Five of them from the 10 commandments and then one that he kind of throws in there at the end. But the five that he gives from the 10 commandments, he literally lists in order, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And then he adds this one for good measure. He says, love your neighbor As yourself, So these five of the 10 that Jesus points out pertain to how we relate to one another. So don't kill someone, don't kill others, don't steal from others, don't lie to people, don't cheat on them, and so on. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself. He's sort of wrapping it all up in the statement to love your neighbor. The last one sort of wraps up the other five. But interestingly, there's no other mention in here of having no other gods which seems like it'd be a pretty important one, right? Like, why doesn't he mention having no other God? It's strange. He doesn't mention the first commandment or taking the Lord's name in vain or covening. Like, weren't those ones equally as important to Jesus? Like, you'd think that they would be. I mean, if you fast forward to Matthew chapter 22, a question is asked of Jesus. Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus answers, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, it's like the first, all of the commandments rest on it. Is Jesus's Jesus' response. But Jesus doesn't mention this here, like the most important one. He doesn't mention here, like in this passage, no mention of faith or grace or being born again even in this passage. Just this emphasis on keeping some of the commandments while leaving some really important commandments out. So what is it that's going on? If you look back at verse 20 at the response of the rich young ruler, Um, the young man said to him all these I have kept and then he says what do I still lack so he he asked Jesus another question the first was Jesus what do I need to do and now he asks what do I lack so I love this question like we're getting to know this man really well in this question the man's soul is sort of laid bare for us like what is it that I lack, Lord? Like, and I don't think that this question by this man was posed formally to Jesus. Like, I don't think the man literally just came up to Jesus and was like, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Like, I don't think that's the way it, did, it went down because if you look into Mark's account of the same story in the Gospel of Mark, you read that this man ran to Jesus This man throws himself at Jesus' feet, this rich, young ruler, goes against all social norms, all the the customs, and he lies at the feet of Jesus. And I want you to read this question with some angst, because why is he throwing himself at the feet of Jesus? He's saying, Jesus, what do I lack? What do I lack? I have everything, what what is it? Just tell me what I lack. And I want you to picture it literally with tears running down this man's eyes. Like, teacher, I've got everything. Like, I'm doing everything I can. I've literally done all these things, but yet I still find that something's missing. And it's raw. And, And I sort of think that it suggests that this man has this restlessness in his soul. That though he had everything, there was something he didn't have. Something he's still looking for. Does that resonate with any of you this morning? You essentially have everything North Idaho can offer you, perhaps, except peace. And it seems like if you have everything except for peace, you've missed them all. Like, I'd much rather have peace than everything. And I really, I dig this guy because as we see him here, he, he's like so close. Like he, he didn't want nominal goodness. Like he didn't want standard fair practices. He wanted something more than money could buy, something more than keeping the commandments in and of themselves can bring. He wanted something more than, than even being rich, being young, having power and influence, more than those things could help him realize, Jesus, what am I lacking? And Jesus says in verse 21, If you would be perfect, listen to this, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. That word perfect actually can be translated with the word complete. So regardless of the the translation, something that's super important for us to know about eternity in the kingdom of heaven is that the kingdom of heaven doesn't accept good people. The kingdom of heaven only accepts perfect people. Those are the only ones that enter into eternity with Jesus, those that are perfect. And so Jesus says, if you want to be perfectly complete, lacking nothing necessary for eternal life, then go and sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, and come and follow me. My question is, do you think Jesus really meant this? Did he mean this? I mean, like, he must have, right? Like, would Jesus just be messing with this guy? Like this guy's laying at his feet full of angst, wanting to know these questions regarding his eternity. Would Jesus just be messing with him? And so Jesus must have been serious, which then makes you wonder, like, this must pertain to just this guy, but it doesn't pertain to me, right? This is just a story we're supposed to glean from, But not something that he's encouraging me to do. Like, this is just about this man. He's using this man as sort of a case study. It sucks to be him. But it's good to be me because I don't have to actually follow suit. But, Anthem, what if this isn't meant to be read as some sort of an exceptional case? But what if this really is a template for our salvation? Like, this is salvation. That that what is true for this young man is actually true for you and I. So what do we do with this? And so let me challenge you a bit this morning. What we don't want to do is to attempt to, like, soften this passage like so many people do. Like, oh, that was for him, not for me. I don't really have anything to take from this. I'll, we, we like to round the edges of things when Jesus is actually coming in with something fairly potent, and he's wanting to make a point, and then we go, "Oh, well, that was for then, that's not necessarily for now. That was for him, it's not necessarily for me." And so we as Christians like to sort of soften the edges of what Jesus is actually communicating. But I mean, even commentators, if you go read commenta- commentaries on this section some of them will soften and sort of excuse and manipulate these words in in order to sort of lessen the impact of what Jesus is actually saying. But does Jesus really require that all of his followers sell all they have before following him? So next week we're going to hold a garage sale, you're going to bring all your stuff, and we're just going to sell it all and give to the poor. Like, is that really what Jesus is asking? If you really want to follow me, I need you to get rid of everything you own and then come follow. Is is this a a standard that Jesus is setting? Not exactly. I mean, he didn't do that with Zacchaeus, for example, There are other examples in scripture where he didn't make them do this, but I can say with assurance that a Christian's relationship with money, a follower of Jesus's relationship with money, has to be drastically different than those who don't know Jesus, with no exceptions. The way we handle money, the control it has on us, it has to be different. Because few things in your life, evidence where our hearts truly lie, other than our bank accounts, right? Like, sometimes that's the best way to really figure out where somebody's heart is. Like what owns you, what really owns you? What are you really given to? And what Jesus requires from all his followers is wholehearted devotion, Like, which is what Jesus was after with this man. What he requires of all his followers is that we have a, a love for him that will make all other loves we have in this life pale in comparison to our love for him. And he requires this of his followers, that that our devotion to him would lead us to places where we would literally, like we talked about a few weeks ago, gouge out and cut away that which hinders us most. Anything that would keep us from him, we'd be willing to get rid of. And so Jesus requires that all of his followers love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, without exception. That the only thing we could covet would be a deeper relationship with Jesus himself. And what Jesus requires of his followers is that we have no other gods before him. Like, Jesus won't play the role of mistress in your life. He won't. That's not his place. And in the case of this rich young ruler, he had another god that stood in the way. There was something that was hindering him. It was his wealth. And so what is it that stands in your way? What what is it that stands in my way? Like, this man literally made a God out of his wealth. And as Jesus said earlier in Matthew, you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and money. Like, Jesus would rather have you walk away than to stay and think that you could. Like, that's what you see here. And how do you know if money has become your God? Well, it's evidence in how you'd respond if Jesus asked you to give it away. His response to the man, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So I want you to hear verse 22 in contrast with the parable that we saw earlier in Matthew in chapter 13 where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field and it feels like, that parable feels like the inverse of the passage that we're reading, like totally opposite response. Why was the man sorrowful and not full of joy like in Matthew 13? Well verse 22 tells us why he's sorrowful, why? Because he had tons of possessions. Like have you ever heard of such a thing? Where you have so much that it like bums you out? Did did you ever think in your life that having great possessions could literally make you sorrowful? Did you ever think that being able to afford to live in North Idaho could make you sad? Why did he feel the sorrow? Because of all that he had. And the fact is that what he owned, listen to this, actually owned him. His possessions that he had actually owned him. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like your possessions have become the possessor? And so this man walks away sorrowful. And as he walks away, I'm sure in his head he's sort of like rationalizing this so that by the time he gets home he sort of can make sense of this decision he made to walk away. I mean, to give away all that I have and to follow Jesus, I mean, where would my prestige come from? Like, where would my security come from? Where would my retirement come from? To do something like this would be a statement that I truly believe that Jesus is my source. Like, you'd have to truly believe in Jesus to do something that crazy, conversation going on in his head. You have to truly believe that Jesus is where your comfort and your security and your hope actually rested. This was way too big a stretch for a man that's in love with his money as much as he was. But I wonder about us. Like, and I wonder about me. And and, and so he he walks away and he asks this amazing question and he asks it to a great person. Actually, he asks it to the best person and he gets the right answer, but he walks away nonetheless because it was way too big of a sacrifice to make. And here's the thing about the Christian life, and Jesus specifically, is that Jesus doesn't ask us to make sacrifices. Jesus doesn't ask us to make sacrifices. I know some of you like go rifling through your mind, like you think about like Romans twelve, where we're to present our bodies as these living sacrifices. And I get it, but we need to read this verse as more a, of an investment than a sacrifice, because an investment comes with a guaranteed rate of return. Like how many of you guys put your money in a CD or an interest bearing like, savings account, right? And you go, oh, I'm gonna, I have a couple extra thousand dollars, I'm gonna put it in an interest bearing savings account. How much do you get on one of those? Somebody help me out. 1%, <laughs> 1.5, I hope I have five bucks extra in two years from the $1,000 that I put in it. Like, you don't make very much. But what if you approached a banker and you literally said, I have X, X amount of dollars that I want to put into this, this account to, for a guaranteed interest. And you asked the banker, what's the guaranteed interest rate on this? And the banker said, 100%. Actually, more than you can ever ask or think of. What would you do? I'd go home and sell everything I have, bring back all the cash and say like, can you invest all of this? Because that is an amazing investment to get more than I can ever ask or think or imagine back in return for the little bit that I have to offer. What an amazing investment. Church, this is what Jesus offers us. It's not sacrifice. It's not something where you're putting money into something or time or your life into something that you're never gonna get anything out. You actually get this return. You get this eternal return, more valuable than anything else in this life. That's what Jesus is offering. And so the challenge for us is, will we take Jesus at his word, or will you walk away? Will you take him at his word, or will you walk away? In Philippians 3 Paul recounts his life, and he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's look at the, the last four verses of the passage here. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. How many of you guys have heard that verse before? Another verse that we use so flippantly, right? Like, everything's possible with God. Well, like, I'm not saying that's not the case. We'll come back to that. But the context that it's being shared in is very interesting. What's impossible with man, salvation, is not possible with man. You can't convince or convert anybody. Is actually possible with God by his power. And so why were they astonished in verse 24? 25, like they're, they're totally perplexed because the way they thought about things was indicative of the ideas of their day. Like the, their thinking was that if you were rich, then obviously God's favor was upon you. The, the, they, they were blessed by God. Like if you had a ton of wealth, then God's blessing was upon you. If you remember the story of Job, they were sort of the flip side of Job's friends, right? Job was sick, people are dying, he was losing his wealth, and then Job's friends say, well, obviously, you've done something against God, and that's why you're going through this, Job. It's a result of something you've done. It's a flip, so this is the flip side of this. And so their mindset was like, well, obviously, rich people are blessed by God, and so with that mindset, overlay that on the passage today, so if the rich can't get into heaven, they're going, who in the world can? If that guy is blessed by God and he has everything and he can't get into heaven, then who can? And then you, you see this mindset even bleed over into questions that the disciples asked of Jesus regarding a blind man prior, where they said, hey, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? Like, he's blind for a reason. Who's responsible for This guy being blind, did he sin against God and that was the result of that? Did his parents sin against God and that was the result of that? And Jesus sort of counters this whole mindset and says straight up that it's only with difficulty that the rich can enter the kingdom of heaven. Like how difficult is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven It's easier to push a camel through the eye of a needle. Like, it's that difficult. There's no other way of putting it than to say that being rich is literally, it's dangerous to our salvation. It's dangerous. It's hard. And why is that? Because at the very least, it tempts us towards our own self-sufficiency, and it actually causes a lot of pride to be stirred up within us. And both of these traits are the antithesis of the Christian faith, the Christian life. Jesus said God opposes the proud, but he has grace for the humble. One commentator said this, where the people of his day saw riches as a manifest sign of the blessing of God, Jesus saw wealth as a hindrance to spiritual progress. This is why Jesus says in Luke 6 20, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's really interesting. Like you look at the West, where we live, you guys, and you look at, um, especially in the church, people say all the time, the church in the West is so blessed. Like we, it's so good here. Well, how do we define that? You ever ask somebody that question when they say that? I don't know if people say that to you. The, the church is so blessed in the West. Well, explain that to me. Well, basically what they're saying is the church has so much stuff. It must be good. And so that mindset has literally bled into the American church and us thinking that as long as we have stuff, things, some, then, then we're blessed. And so we need to live this life on a trajectory of always gaining things. But any of you that have lived any period of time on this earth as an adult know that gaining stuff sucks. Like nothing causes me more stress than a You can ask my wife. Like, my OCD and my anxiety freaks out. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, just, I need simpler life. You know, like, I can't deal with all this stuff. I don't know where to put it all. Like, it literally causes me to hyperventilate, and it freaks me out. Like, I hate it. And then I go, why do I have all of this? Like, I know it freaks me out. I know it causes anxiety, but yet there's something in me that just wants to keep grabbing it because deep down inside, what I hope is if I can have it, it's going to do something in me to fill the void like the rich young ruler was trying to fill. Jesus, what more do I need to do? I've done it all. Like, what more do I need to do? She's like, get rid of your crap, sell it all, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. That's Jesus' statement. Like, there's still something that's hindering you. So I'm not telling you guys today, like the takeaway from this sermon is, you go home and pray about how much stuff you're gonna sell. And then we're gonna take all that cash and we're gonna give to the poor. What I am saying is, you all have something that's hindering you. We all do. And we approach Jesus in the same way that this man did with these open hearts, like in all of our angst, like Jesus, please show me what's, like, what's in the way. And so often in our lives when Jesus speaks, we go, no, not that. Like, I'll walk away in sorrow. (laughs) I guess I'll live in my stuff. And it's like, what? Like, why is that the option? Like, he's trying to reveal your heart and you're just gonna walk away. But I had this thought recently as I'm looking at my own pile of stuff. (laughs) And I'm thinking like, Maybe our riches really aren't God's blessing, like we've always been taught. Maybe it's us doing a really good job of attaining our idols. Maybe we're doing a really good job acquiring the things that actually cause the hindrance. They were blessed by God in their poverty because they had less hindrances to that which um, hindrances to that which is greatest. Wealth brings with it things that can keep us from Jesus. Wealth gives us comfort and ease. We find our identity wrapped up in it. It gives us power. And as I said earlier, nothing reveals our hearts more than money. Nothing is more of a lure than money. Jesus said this in the parable of the seeds and the soils. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So how do riches deceive us? They promise us what they can't deliver. Constantly. They, they tell us that they're going to do something for us that only Jesus can. They, they deceive us into settling for something less than what's offered to us in Christ Jesus. They, they suggest blessing and wisdom when Jesus calls the man who had so much money that had to build more barns to store his stuff in, he calls him what? A fool. But money keeps us from being like a child. And to come back to where this whole passage started like a child is somebody who's, who's dependent upon their father. Like, one of the barriers to entry with regards to entrance into the kingdom of heaven in the first place is can you come to him like a child? Like, that's where this passage began. The beginning of the passage is speaking of children. And it actually serves as sort of this contrast to what's actually taking place by the time you get to the end of this passage. Are we going to be like the child who comes to Jesus, or are we going to be like the rich young ruler who walks away sorrowful? That's really our text this morning, and the choice is yours. Like, Which one are you going to be? And as we wrap up, I want you to notice just one more time this interchange between Jesus and his disciples in verses 25 to 26. Jesus has just finished saying that it's extremely difficult for the rich to enter heaven and then how do the disciples respond to Jesus? They say, well, then who in the world can be saved? Meaning if it's difficult for the rich, then what hope is there for any of us? And what's wrong with that question? What's wrong with the question is that it's so focused on the person, and it's not focused on Christ. Like, to put it frankly, it's a question that has a very small view of God, which is why we read in verse 26 that it says that Jesus, says Jesus looked at them. And what's really neat about that phrase in the Greek, it's an expression that means Jesus cast his gaze down upon them. And it sort of has this idea of like a dad going to a son or a daughter and looking into his son or his daughter's eyes and saying, look at me. Hey, hey, would you, would you look at me? Like, look at me. Like, What, I, what I'm about to tell you is significant, it, it's important. Like, you're out of line, your mindset's wrong, your thinking's wrong. Like, I need you to look at me and I need you to pay attention to what I'm saying. And so what does Jesus say? He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's important to note that at this point, Jesus isn't only talking about the rich. Jesus is talking about all people. He's responding to this question, who can be saved? And what he says about all people is that salvation is impossible without God's work. Salvation is impossible without God's intervention, that you and I can hope to overcome what hinder us from entering into heaven. On our, we can try our best to try to overcome these things on our own strength but there's no deed that you can do that will ever be good enough because you need to be perfect and therefore you need someone to perfect you and that's the whole picture of the gospel is that you cannot do it, that what's impossible with man is possible by God, that we would have a better chance getting a camel through the eye of a needle and what's true of the rich man is true for everybody, right? Right? Conversion is not humanly possible. You can't do it. So to the question, like, who can be saved? And the answer is no one. No one can be saved unless God intervenes. But but if he does, then all things are possible, which actually should fire us up. Like, I'm reading this passage thinking like, Wow, like the evangelist in me gets so stoked when I read sections like this and I go, yeah, it all is possible through, through, through Christ. Like this means that no one is actually too far from gone. Like my neighbor is not too far gone. My coworkers aren't too, well, all my coworkers I hope are saved, but my coworkers uh, are not too far gone your friends, your family, like they're not too far gone. That means that God actually can do the impossible. So we focus on God, we don't focus on the person. And so as we close this morning, I wanna note that what Jesus says here doesn't just apply to salvation, but to all things. With God, all things are possible. And so can I ask the question this morning, is there anyone here that has a circumstance, a situation in your life, that you're literally viewing through a very man-centric lens and not a God-focused lens. Like, I understand that you're going to encounter things in this life, in ministry, as people, things that are seemingly impossible to overcome for you, and some of you are buried in the weight of that right now. But in that realization, here's my question, like, have we stopped believing in the God that can do the impossible? Have we wrote him off? Are we just focused on the thing? So I want to end with a time of confession because I know people love it when I <laughs> confess. But the last two weeks have been so gnarly. Like, up early for meetings, out late for meetings, work, like, constant, like, just on the go. You can ask my wife. I'm like, I'm getting on a plane after this, going on vacation for a period, and I'm like, I have senioritis. I didn't even want to come teach the service. You know, I was just like, I'll just let you guys handle it, I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> um, but, I sort of came to the realization this week that I feel like I'm like trying to push a camel through the eye of a needle. Like Henry, one of our elders, always says, um, you know, sometimes in life you feel like you're pushing a rope. Or it's just like it's not actually moving or doing anything but you're working so hard and continuing to do it and there's no outcome. And there are seasons in my life when, like, I work tirelessly to the bone all for Jesus. And it almost feels like I'm trying to cram this camel through the eye of a needle. And these last couple weeks have been super gnarly. Like, a lot of frustration, a ton of fatigue. And to be often like, honest, like, not nearly enough prayer in the midst of that season. Like, not what my soul needs. And... One of the ways that I can tell when my priorities are off in my life or out of alignment or one of the ways I can tell when I'm like trying to push camels through the eye of a needle um, is when I'm reading Excel spreadsheets more than my Bible. When I'm responding to emails more than I'm spending time in prayer with Jesus. When I put my hours in only to get to the end of it realizing like oh, I'm failing as a pastor. And so I ask you guys, like even in light of my own struggles these last couple weeks, are any of you in life tempted right now to push the camel through the eye of the needle? Are there things you're trying to force and you're working to the bone? You're working so hard. And in fact, your work sometimes you use to justify your position with Jesus. God, I've done all these things. Look what I've built. Look what I've given. I'm a moral person. I'm good. And he goes, still some things. There's still some hindrances. And you have the opportunity this morning as Jesus like calls out those hindrances in our lives to either be the person that goes, Jesus, you can have everything with that later. And you walk away bummed out, like I've just got too much stuff. Or you're the person that actually falls at Jesus' feet like a child and says like, whatever it takes. Like I don't wanna be a master or a slave to these things. I'm gonna end with these three points, I'll ask the worship team to come up. Um, But three things I just wanted to leave you guys with. One is this, that works matter, like our good works matter. Jesus wasn't playing with this guy when he said, you know the commandments. This guy knew the commandments. Loving our neighbor as ourselves actually does matter. It matters. But we all, what we also have to keep in mind is that our works don't actually produce our salvation. They're actually meant to be the fruit of our salvation. So works don't lead to salvation. Salvation always leads to work. And, and there's one work that all work is to flow from. And it's the work of Jesus on the cross all of our work stems from that place, the work of Jesus. And any work that we do attempting to do what Jesus did for us, to earn something, will always leave us lacking. It'll always leave us attempting to do what's impossible for man. Second thing is that Jesus calls us to give away, to give away everything that hinders our relationship with him, everything that hinders our eternal security. Like in the man's case, it was his possessions. But what is the case for you and I? What, what, what is it for us? What needs to be cut away? Like don't make the mistake of the rich man today and walk away from this building feeling sorrowful versus coming to Jesus like a child and laying everything before him. That's the invitation this morning. And the last thing that I wanna remind you of is that God actually can do the impossible. What is it in your life that you're no longer believing God can do? What are the things that you've stopped praying for? What are the things that you, the people you've stopped sharing with? Like, I want to just simply call you back to belief this morning because I'll be on, honest enough to say, man, at 18 years old, I was like the fiery evangelist kid that was not, not afraid to share Jesus with anybody. And the older you get, the easier it is to take a back seat and just lose the fire in your gut that you once have go through more things in life more experiences more hurts more pain emotional distress and you get to a place in life where you basically stop believing that god can do the impossible and you stop praying those prayers you start going after the impossible people you basically just relegate yourself to just existing and going through life and going through the motions and i'll ask the question this morning what's the difference between you and the rich young ruler if that's where you're at in your life this morning God calling you to step back into the impossible again? Like the charismatic in me is like, yes, you know, like let's do this. I mean, like the, the fact of the matter is, we live in a county that statistically, like you think you live in, you know, severe right conservative Christian North Idaho. Statistically, 80% of our county don't profess a faith in Jesus. So God is literally using the 20% to reach the 80. And if you don't feel that fire in your gut to be like, man, these people need to know Jesus. I need to stop just sitting back in my house and thinking that you know, my whole purpose in life is just about me and acquiring my stuff, building my kingdom. Like, who is it that Jesus is calling you to step out and minister to? Like the world, Jesus has called the 20 to reach the 80. The world needs Jesus. And at the point that Christians stop believing for the impossible is sort of the point that we start becoming just a docile church that's impotent. And I don't wanna play that game (laughs) at all. Like it's not worth it. There's many other things I could do in my life that would pay a way better dividend than to just be a docile, impotent Christian that just goes through the motions. I'm sorry, like there's way better things to do. That's not what Jesus bled and died for. That's not the gift that he's offered you. New life, eternal life in him. Would you guys stand with me? Why don't you bow your heads with me and let me pray for us. There's a couple people in the room this morning that I really just felt led to pray for and I just couldn't shake the feeling this morning as I was praying that there's people here that do not know Jesus. And the version of Jesus that you've been pitched most of your life is not the Jesus of the Bible. And maybe you've been told you've got to do better, do more things, you have to be a better person. Like Maybe you've been told that what you acquire and what you do on this earth actually is earning you something, the favor of God. And this morning, maybe what you're realizing is that you've tried really hard. You've done a lot of good things. You're tired. You're worn out and still sense that there's a gap. And you're like the rich young ruler that's coming before for Jesus and saying like, there's gotta be more to this. There has to be more to this. And I think this morning Jesus' answer to you is yes, there is. It's not found in what you partake in here on this earth. It's found in Jesus through his death and his resurrection. And if you're here this morning and you want to know Jesus like it's that simple so if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth you will be saved, you believe that Jesus lived the perfect life died a death in your place to cover your sins to grant you forgiveness and by his spirit has now given you power and authority through Jesus, he's given you an eternal guarantee And then the other people I want to pray for are those of you that are believers and you work hard and you're trying to push lots of camels through needles realizing that there's not really much on the other end of it. And maybe you're like me in the sense that you're like, man, I literally looked at more spreadsheets this week than I did my Bible. I literally sent more emails and spent more time on my computer than I did spending time with Jesus. And for us as the church, like what an awesome privilege we have to engage the living God. And I want to encourage you this morning to draw near to him, to fall down at his feet this morning as his children, cast your cares upon him and trust in him to grant you his peace and his rest. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for each person in this room. Um, God, I know that they're here for a reason. I pray that your spirit would just move through this place, God. I ask that you be the one to encourage, edify, and come alongside of those that just feel beat down and they feel the weight of the world and they're not sure how they can crawl out of it. Jesus, I thank you that I'm not dependent on my own strength to crawl out, but I'm dependent on the power that only you can offer. And so I pray that you'd step in, Jesus. I pray that your hand be upon this church and these people, that as we look at the 80% in our community that may not know you, I ask Jesus that there be a fire in our gut that we would be the salt and the light, the city on a hill that can't be hidden, the people that would take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that others would come to know you in the same gift that you've offered us, Jesus. So I pray for them, Lord. I pray your joy would abound, your grace and your forgiveness and your love and your peace would abound in this church and it would bring a sweet aroma to Coeur d'Alene as we just live our lives, Jesus. I pray that others would see you in us and see the gift that you've given us and that as others ask for this gift, we be the one to connect them to the giver. Thank you for each person in this room, Jesus, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.